Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. We're in week five of our five-part series called The Way Forward. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I hope that it's been clarifying for you. So many of you are new and you had never heard of uh, Vision 2020 and, and our Come to Connect series that we did years ago. And so all of this is fresh, but for me, it, 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 it's, it's bringing it all together in one series. And uh, it's been refreshing for me and I hope it's been informative and helpful for you as well. Um, I'm looking forward to getting back into Romans next week though, amen. Back in Romans chapter eight and uh, for us to, to continue on in our study through the book of Romans. You know, secular sociologists are finally discovering what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. And it is this, marriages matter to a culture. Secular sociologists who are, uh, are, are they could care less about the religious and faith aspect of marriage are recognizing that a culture that despises marriage quickly breaks down. And they're recognizing that in American culture, our despising of marriage, of putting it off, of, of, of prioritizing everything but marriage, of looking at it with contempt is hurting, ready, our economy. And there's a, there's a woman named Melissa Kearney who is a secular sociologist who wrote a book called The Two-Parent Privilege. And what she has brought out, what she's brought, uh, bringing out is countercultural. It goes counter to the feminist, radical feminist, second wave feminist message, women, you don't need a man. It, it goes counter to the, to the idea that, that parents don't either, or kids don't need their parents. It goes counter to this and it says that the most uh, privileged, I, I, I'll use the word that they use, the most privileged um, children are those who grow up in two-parent two households. Well, the Bible told us that for thousands of years. But thankfully, I mean, what is true is true, amen? amen. You're only gonna deny the created order for so long. And what is true is true. And, and what is true is that kids need two parents and marriages matter. Amen. We're gonna talk today about family transformation and community impact, the core values of Wildwood Church, two of the four core values of Wildwood Church, how they, they go together. I'll make the premise that strong families build strong culture, that healthy families build healthy society. All right, let's look here in Genesis chapter three. But before we do that, you know, before the fall, Genesis one and two, before the fall, there was a divine plan written on the very fiber of creation, written on our very hearts. It's a plan that was, that was vividly laid out in Genesis chapter one, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why don't we pray and ask that same Lord that blessed them to bless us this morning. Father, we do love you and thank you for your grace and we come and we turn our attention to you and we turn our affection to you, we turn our hearts to you and Lord, we, we look to your word and we pray that you would bless us. We pray that you would um, fill us with a vision of what you desire and designed marriage and family to be. I pray that you would be glorified in how we hear and how we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. It says that God blessed them. God blessed them. Can you fathom the blessing that God blessed Adam and Eve with? Can you imagine the beauty of, of two souls without sin committing to each other for eternity and producing life in abundance in, in their stewardship, bringing order out of chaos? That was God's design for marriage, and it's for one singular purpose, that the glory of God would go throughout the whole world. That like the waters cover the earth, the glory of God would cover the earth. But as the age-old story in Genesis 3 unfolds, we see that looming shadow of the serpent. You know, we, we long for that. We, we wish that that was the case, and yet we know that it's not. And why? Because we know the story of Genesis 3. Verse 1 says, that serpent, more crafty than any other beast. The serpent is the embodiment of cunning and deceit. It slithers into the pristine, innocent, perfect paradise called the Garden of Eden. And it whispers beguiling words into the ears of Eve causing her to doubt the very word of God, to question its goodness and trustworthiness. It says in verse four, you shall not surely die. The serpent hissed. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And as you know, Tragically, she succumbed to the temptation. She took of the forbidden fruit and she shared it with her husband. And it's, what follows here is, is, is tragedy to me. It says, who, who was with her and he ate. She took it, she, she was deceived, she took it and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. As a result, both Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to, to cover their shame. They hid themselves from the presence of God. In one moment, the blissful innocence of Eden was lost. 
The Lord calls out to them in the cool of the day. He comes and he wants to walk with them, which seems to be a normal thing. I mean, the author, Moses, as he's writing Genesis, treats this as if it's normal. Uh, in the cool of the day, he goes and, and, he, and he goes to take a stroll with Adam and Eve. Can you imagine? And he calls out to them, verse 9, where are you? Also tragic. And when they heard his voice, they played that pathetic blame game. Why, do we, why, do, why are we prone to blame other people for our faults? Because it's in our heritage. It's, 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 in our, it's in our blood. It's Adam and Eve. Adam blames Eve and, in fact, blames God for Eve, this woman that you gave me. And then Eve blames the serpent God declares the consequences. He hands out the curses. And to the woman, he declares, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So in this tragic account of the first interaction between Satan and humanity, we see Satan sowing the seeds of doubt, disrupting the sacred covenant of marriage, and twisting God's word. The enemy's assault on families had begun and it set this dark precedent of the enemy attacking families throughout history. The family is the very first institution created by God in Genesis 2. It's the cornerstone of society. It's given to us as a gift of God's common grace sort of like it rains on the good and the evil. The, 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 evil the, the, the crop of the evil gets the rain just like the crop of the good. So marriage is a blessing of common grace. Societies, even secular, pagan societies, are made better because of marriage. It is a gift of God's common grace. Where the family weakens... The whole society weakens, but strong families build strong cultures. And I believe this is why the enemy has always set his sight on destroying the enemy, uh, excuse me, destroying the marriage, the family. He seeks to dismantle it. He seeks to undermine it. He seeks to, uh, to work against it, to, to make it trivial and, and pointless, to make it unnecessary in the eyes of people. And that is why family transformation is a core value at Wildwood Church. Genesis 2 presents God's design for marriage. Genesis 3 presents the frustration of marriage. And Ephesians 5 presents to us a vision of redemption for marriage and family. Paul there in Ephesians 5 
says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A healthy and strong marriage and family requires mutual self-giving. I wonder if your skin crawled just a little bit when you read those words, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Don't you see the mutual sacrifice in the call to husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church? This is mutual sacrifice. This is both parties laying down their lives for the benefit of the other person. 1 Peter 3 shows us that a wife's submission and respectful conduct can profoundly impact her husband's faith. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands as, or so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. Perhaps it remains an unrealized desire for you women that your husband would lead you faithfully. I don't know any woman that says, yep, I want my husband to dominate me. That I want my husband to take advantage of me. I want my husband to control my every move. No, but I have not met a woman who deep down doesn't want her husband to lead her faithfully. You were created to respond to your husband. And when your husband leads like Christ, what, what happens is your heart is drawn to that. Now, listen, you might have to unpack some deep trauma from your past. And maybe you've been hurt. Maybe your husband has hurt you. Maybe there needs to be healing. But I'm saying this is a principle. This is a created order thing. You're not going to be happier. I'll put it like this. You're not going to be happier being contrary to your husband. Did you pick up on that in Genesis chapter three, the curse to, to Eve is your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will dominate you. That, that's the messed up world. That's the curse. That's the, that's the punishment of Adam and Eve disobeying the word of God. If it remains an unrealized desire for you women that your husband would lead faithfully, I want you to trust the Lord and I want you to let your husband see your respectful and pure conduct. Now men, we can be pretty obtuse when it comes to our wives. We know, understand, we know, we know more understand this woman that lives with us than we understand the word I just used, obtuse. Admit it, you didn't know what I meant. <laughs> the truth is I had to look it up. <laughs> Obtuse means annoyingly insensitive. Slow to understand. Man, that's us. Men, we are by nature obtuse. 
slow to understand, annoyingly insensitive. This is why Peter continues in chapter three. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, which, which, which I take to mean like most of the uh, commentators in, in the circle that I would find myself as physically, just as a general rule of thumb, women are weaker than men. It's not intellectually, it's certainly not emotionally, and it's definitely not spiritually. But as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me just state it clearly. Your obtuseness with your wife is sin. I'll say it again so that you can process this because you're obtuse. (laughs) Your obtuseness with your wife is sin. And I had to get down on my knees last night as I was reading this and I go, "Uh uh-oh, have I ever been obtuse with you? And that was a big joke. We know that the answer is yes. And I had to apologize. I'm not preaching at you, men. Just telling you what the word says. Our obtuseness with our wives, our annoying insensitivity, our slowness to understand our wives is sin. And listen, it has consequences. Peter says that your prayers may not be hindered. So what is he implying? If we remain obtuse with our wives, what is he implying? If we remain insensitive with our wives, what does that mean? It means that God is gonna be insensitive to our prayers. Our prayers are gonna be hindered. Why would God bless the prayers of a man who exercised delegated authority in the home as a man of God and and who don't wield that primarily for the advantage and benefit of his wife and children, why would God bless that? Why would he hear the prayers of men who are insensitive to their wives as co-heirs with Christ? Peter says he he won't. Your, Your prayers are gonna be hindered God's blessing of a home is precisely what so many homes are missing, even Christian homes. The longer I pastor this church, the more I recognize that we are a a family of families that need the Lord's blessing. The Lord is bringing to our church many, many people who are struggling, and even those that seem to have it together, and this is what you have to understand is true, even those who seem to have it together don't. We need God's blessing in our homes. And it's not like we have to guess, it's not like we have to do a word search. The Bible tells us the type of home that God blesses. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. 
and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who what? Fears the Lord. You want your home to be blessed. You want your wife to be blessed. You want your kids to be blessed. Men, stop playing around and start fearing the Lord. Stop acting as if this is just a game. Fear the Lord. Submit your life to him. Give yourself fully to him. Then your house will be blessed. We have so many issues in in the church with with marriages and families. Where's the answer? Fear the Lord. Stop living as if you are God in your home. You're not, men. God is God in your home. If you want to be a you want to have a blessed life, fear the Lord. Now, the Bible speaks to women as well. Proverbs 31, I don't have time to read the entire thing, but it extols the virtues of an excellent wife. It highlights her trustworthiness, her industriousness, her determination to do good to her husband. Women, you're sinners too. Women, you've got that sin of Eve in you that says, no, but you're going to be in in charge. You're going to take control, and that's how you'll be happy. And do good for yourself. But Proverbs 31 talks about how the wife does good for her husband. And don't you see the mutual relationship? You have this man who, who trusts in God, who fears God, who lays down his life to serve his wife, and you have a wife who does good to him. How could that not be a blessed home? And people are like, well, we just don't know what to do. The Bible tells us. The Bible gives us the instructions. We know how to have a blessed home. We just don't want to do what it says. Am I right? Deuteronomy 6, which I quoted here in the parent dedication, Deuteronomy 6 emphasizes the importance of passing God's God's word from generation to generation, teaching it diligently in daily life. This general principle in the Old Testament is given directly to fathers in the New Testament. Look at what Ephesians 6, 4 says. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, let me ask you this question. Have you imparted spiritual truths to your children this week? You go back over your week, you you think through the Rolodex of your mind over the last week. Have you, dad, imparted spiritual truth to your offspring? If your thought is, well, yeah, I brought them to church, you're missing it. You're missing it. Bringing your children to church does not meet the standard of Ephesians 6.4. It doesn't meet the standard of Deuteronomy 6. That is not 
what Moses and Paul had in mind. It's not what the Lord has in mind in terms of transferring the faith from one generation to the next. Bring your kids to church. No, it is your responsibility, men. You are responsible for teaching your children in the ways of the Lord. Our church, the ministries of our church, our kids' ministry, our youth ministry, they supplement, not supplant. They supplement, not replace your responsibility to make disciples of your kids. It is your responsibility. My question for you is, have you taken it? Have you accepted that responsibility? Or are are you just simply outsourcing? So many men are outsourcing, at very least, to their wives. Well, my wife prays with our kids. My wife reads the Bible to our kids. We take our kids to church, so uh, pretty good. No, men, what have you taught to your children this week? Now, look, this is where family worship comes in. All right, I'm, I'm being hard on you dads because sometimes we're obtuse. Right? We're slow to understand. I'm being hard. I'm driving it. I know your wife already feels this. She already feels the weight. I'm trying to get you to feel the weight. This is where family worship comes in. It's a simple but it's profound practice of reading, praying, and singing in your home. You simply read a passage of scripture and you think, well, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a pastor. Get an ESV study Bible that has notes so that if you get stuck, you can simply refer to the theologian and get unstuck. You read a passage of scripture, you ask some clarifying questions. What did you hear? That's the first question that I ask my kids. What did you hear? And then we let a conversation unfold from that. Then you take some prayer requests. What's going on in your life? What's going on in your community? What's going on in your church? What are you doing that day? How can we pray for you? And then you close it with a song. Or you open with a song and you close it with prayer. It doesn't matter. What's important is, men, you know this is your job. What is important is, men, you know this is your job to disciple your families. It's not my job. It's not the job of our kids' ministry director, not the job of our youth ministry director. It is your job. Do it for the glory of God. Amen? Men, amen. Now, moms, perhaps the father of your children is not around or refuses to do this. It's your job. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But that's the way it is sometimes in a fallen world. You do that job. And you trust the Lord, and he'll bless it. Now look, we worship with families in our home, but what about at church? 
I'm concerned to see families that, that they come to first service and they let their kids go to youth group and then together they leave after first service and their teens never worship together with their families. And what this is conveying to your teenager is your place is in the youth group, not in the body of Christ. But kids who are brought into the worship service are being trained that you are part of this body of Christ. And so parents, I want to encourage you to bring your kids with you into worship service. If first service is the only service that you can attend, bring your kids into first service. And listen, Josh echoes this and speaks these same things. Our youth ministry director does not want to replace you. He wants to supplement you. He wants to partner with you. He wants to come alongside you. So he says these things. He's asked me to say these things from the pulpit. If the only thing you can do is come to one service, first service, then bring your kids with you. But what I would encourage you to do is that you find a place to serve in first service or attend an adult Bible study while your kids are in Sunday youth group and then together you worship in second service. That would be my pastoral exhortation to you. And now a word to singles. I don't want to leave singles out. I know that we are prone to do this in the church. I don't want to leave singles out. I want instead to praise the Lord for your singleness. And I want you to praise the Lord for your singleness. Whether you're called to lifelong celibacy or you're in a season of singleness, I want you to use this time to magnify the Lord and his glory through your maximal availability. Paul says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that this is a good thing, that this is good for them to remain single as I am. Why did Paul say that it was good to remain single? It's because of their increased ability to serve the Lord. So are you single? Use your maximal availability for the glory of God. Go on mission. Serve more than anyone else. Use your singleness. Here, I want to I blow your mind just a little bit here, okay? I want you to use your singleness the same way God expects married people to use their marriage. Mutual sacrifice for the glory of God. So many people think, well, I'm single. I'll be happy when I'm married. Then I can live for the Lord. Then I can, I'll be fulfilled when I'm married. Man, married people have it so easy. No, the call to married people is spend yourself sacrificing for someone else. And the call to singles is spend your life sacrificing for someone else. Give your life in sacrifice to Jesus Christ. 
And here's how I like to say this to my kids and other people that are, that are pursuing relationships. I say, you run as fast as you can run after Jesus. And you look to your left and your right. And the young lady or the young man that's keeping up with you, pursue them. But where does it begin? Pursue Christ. Pursue Christ. Give your, Jesus is worthy of you spending yourself entirely. And that, if you're single or married, it's the same call. It's just, it's just executed in different ways. Now let's move on to our fourth and final core value, which is directly related to family transformation. Because the church is a family of families, both young and old, single, couples, lots of kids, no kids. The church is a family of families. And so when the family grows stronger, the church grows stronger. And when the church grows stronger, the community is impacted. Two weeks ago, I shared with you our vision, which is every member a missionary. Maybe you saw it on this wall out here in the fireside room. It's hard to miss. Every member a missionary taking the gospel across the street and around the world. That's our vision. That's where we believe the Lord wants us to go. We believe that the Lord would have us to raise up every member of our church to see that they are part of a body whose purpose is to share the gospel wherever they go. That when you walk out of this room, you recognize that you're on mission I appreciate it. I saw a post from one of our members this morning who said every person that you meet on the street is either your brother in Christ or sister in Christ or your mission field. Nothing in between. They either, they either know Jesus or they need to know Jesus. We also believe that we are specifically to raise up 50 of our own people who will sell everything, write a blank check to Jesus and say, here I am, send me anywhere in the world, I will go. 50 of our own. Over the next 20, I think we're now a year into this, so 24 years. And in addition to that, 150 missionaries around the world financially supported by our church. That's the vision. It's an audacious vision. It's a scary vision. It's one of those visions that I honestly believe that if the Lord doesn't show up, if, if we've gotten this wrong, it's going to fail. We can't make this happen on our own. But we believe because we have prayed and we have sought the Lord earnestly, we believe this is what he wants us to do. And we're making great strides to that end. I was hugely encouraged on Wednesday night. I met a, a couple in our fireside room and I thought, I, I introduced myself. I could tell they were first time here and they had their kids and I introduced myself and, and it turns out that they were being interviewed that evening by our missions committee as a potential missionary couple. So this couple with an infant in a car seat and, and other children 
is getting ready to sell everything and go to the last unreached people group in, the, in Uganda. And I thought, well, man, that's amazing. And I was richly encouraged until I found out that the missions committee was also interviewing three more missionary couples who are all going to the 1040 window. This week alone, four potential missionary partnerships for unreached people groups. Now look, it's not just international missions that we're concerned about. The reality is that I have been told we live in one of the least reached people groups, uh, reached communities of our size in the United States. It's hard to verify these things. But the data suggests that there's plenty of work for us to do across the street. Amen? The data suggests that there are, is plenty of work to do among our neighbors. And that is why we are raising up and equipping the saints within the church to do the work of ministry, sending you out into the Quad Cities. You are our missionaries in the Quad Cities. People think, well, we have 15 or 20 missionaries around the world. What about the Quad Cities? You! You are. That's what you do. And plus, we partner with nonprofit organizations that minister in ways that we can't. They're very focused, and they get into people's homes that that you and I might might never get into. And they take the gospel to them. So our concern is not only international. We think globally and we live locally. We think globally, and we live locally. And by that I mean that we think the gospel globally, and we live the gospel locally. Listen, there's a lot of work to be done, and we always need more hands on the rope. We always need more hands on the rope. None of us is strong enough to do what all of us is called to do. We're a body and we have a mission. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that when the body parts are working together properly, it makes the body build itself up in love. And whether it has to do with funding our budget or going on short-term mission trips or serving in the community or staffing our own ministries with volunteers or tangibly encouraging those who do, Don't underestimate the ministry of encouragement. Community impact doesn't happen unless we get more hands on the rope pulling the same direction. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, I want you to picture a big burly man up here on the stage, 300 pounds, six foot six, holding a tug of war rope, and on the other side, a five-year-old boy. No matter how hard he pulls, He's no match. And so it would be pointless for us to say to him, just pull harder. Pull harder. No, what we do is we invite more people to come up on stage and put their hands on the rope and pull in the same direction. And that changes everything. 
And brother and sister, that's the invitation to you. Put your hands on the rope and start pulling. If you already have your hands on the rope, you're already giving and serving faithfully, then keep pulling. Don't let up. But if you're not, I want you to put your hand on the rope. There is a worthwhile, noble mission being executed at Wildwood Church. And we are impacting not only the Quad Cities, but the entire world. Is your hand on the rope? If it's not, I invite you to join us in this mission by putting your hand on the rope. We have a website that we just launched. Pastor Andrew mentioned this in our announcements right here, wildwoodchurch.com forward slash serve. It's a good place for you, for you to get started. It's a good place for you to indicate your interest in serving at our church. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What did Jesus want people to see in you? Was it your intellect? Let, let your light shine before others so that they may see your intellect. They may see how smart you are. Let them see your theological library. No, let them see your good works. Let the outside world see your good works. For what purpose? So they think well of you? So that they think, man, you're, you're such a good person. You're better than me? No, so that they would see the glory of the Father. They would glorify our Father in heaven. The whole point from creation to regeneration, from family transformation to community impact, the whole point is the glory of God over all the earth. It's what it's all about. It's why we exist. It's why we do what we do. And Jesus told us in John 15 how the Father is glorified, how this actually happens. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In Genesis 3.15, right there in the middle of God handing down the curses he, fought, he, he pronounces a promise, a promise of a Messiah who would rescue humanity. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And this promise was fulfilled through the death of Jesus Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out to tell us die. It is finished. What God promised in Genesis 3.15 was finished in John 19.30. Listen, if you're struggling today because you don't feel like you measure up, you don't feel like, you, like you've just nailed it, you don't feel like you're being the man or the woman that God wants you to be, welcome to the club. Okay? The answer is not try harder. The answer is trust deeper. The answer is not look within. The answer is look to Jesus. Jesus told us that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. But if we abide in him, 
then we will produce much fruit. And the Father will be glorified. He will be glorified in your home, and he will be glorified in your community, wherever that community is. As we turn our attention now to communion, I want you to examine your hearts. Are you compelled by Christ's love? Does Christ's love move you out of your seat and into mission? Or does it dole you into boredom? Are you compelled by Christ's love? Are you compelled to love your family sacrificially? To lay down your life for your wife and your children, men? To submit to your husbands, women, as you submit to the Lord? Does the sacrifice of Christ compel you to go into your neighborhood and to share the love of Christ with your neighbors? When we are united in Christ as a body, we are united in his mission. How can the body say to the head, you have your mission and we have ours? We're united in Christ as a body. He is our head. And his mission is our mission. And it is our ambition that those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Will you join us? Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you would bless us and lead us and guide us. Lord, help us to turn our eyes to you. Help us to be compelled by what you've done for us. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.